This is the EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics that you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we've got Swami on a simple approach to status epilepticus in adults. Now, we've covered pediatric status in episode 73, and spoiler alert, we're going to cover adult status in an upcoming main episode on seizures this fall. So here's a little teaser. I've had a couple of cases of status epilepticus in the last month, and I've seen some people struggle trying to figure out what meds to give, how much of those meds to give, and getting caught up in these complicated algorithms that look good on paper, but aren't really good in the resuscitation phase. The biggest issue that I see is a lot of consternation around what should my second line agent be? So I want to give a simplified approach to status epilepticus, and this is mainly for the adult patient, although I think as a fallback for the pediatric patient, it would be fine as well. So let's start with a simple definition. Status epilepticus is anyone who's seizing for more than five minutes. They have a seizure. They stop. They have a repeat seizure without a return of mental status. Or the way I look at it is if they come in by EMS and they were seizing and that's why they got picked up and they're still seizing in front of you, that's status epilepticus. The danger here is that the continued seizure can lead to acidosis and that can lead to CV collapse. And of course, there's the risk for brain damage just from the patient having multiple seizures in a row. Step one for these patients is going to be to assess the ABCs and get a blood glucose. Either give glucose if the patient has a low finger stick or just give it empirically. This is one of those things that we easily forget but is easily fixable. Typically, we can wait on intubation for these patients. We're going to want to obtain an IV. And with that IV, I'd love to see a stat set of lights on a blood gas. So send that off so we can see is the patient hyponatremic. While you're doing this, set up your airway equipment and be ready to go if you need to take over that airway. And then while you're getting those ABCs and that IV, you might want to get a little bit of cursory history if anything is available. Is the patient pregnant? Have they been recently pregnant? Thinking about that postpartum eclampsia. Are they on INH? Do they have any other medications they're taking? Any AEDs? Step two is to administer a benzodiazepine. I think we all agree that benzos are first-line therapy in status epilepticus, but again, sometimes people get confused with what benzo to use, what route, and how much. My first-line benzodiazepine is midazolam, 0.15 milligrams per kilogram IV. That's about 10 milligrams in an average size adult. And if you don't have IV access, you can give it IM instead. So IM midazolam, 10 milligrams. That's a great second line if you can't get an IV. A lot of people will go for lorazepam instead. That's fine with me, but you want to give a good dose of lorazepam, 0.1 mg per kg up to about 8 milligrams. That's a big dose, but that's what the patient needs to break that status. One of the key steps in the logistics of management here is to call not just for your first dose of benzo, but for your first and second dose of benzodiazepine. Just in case that first dose doesn't actually break the seizure, you want that second one ready to go right away. What I often see is that we call for the first dose, it's given, we wait about four to five minutes for the seizures to stop. When they don't, we then call for the second dose, and now there's a delay of one to two minutes while someone's getting that second dose ready to go. So when you call for your first dose, call for your first and second dose and have them both ready to go. The key, once again, is to give adequate benzodiazepine doses. So if you give two milligrams of lorazepam or five milligrams of midazolam, that is not enough to stop this. We have to be giving ample doses, 0.15 milligrams per kilogram of midazolam IV or intramuscular. 
Most algorithms you look at say that once you fail with benzodiazepines, reach for a traditional anti-epileptic drug, something like Keppra or phenytoin, phosphenytoin, valproic acid. The problem with all of these medications is that they take time to work. Even though Keppra can be given over 10 minutes or so, phenytoin takes a little bit longer to infuse, but you don't see effects from these drugs until maybe 30 minutes out, the 30 minutes after starting to administer them. And to me, that's just too long to wait. We've already had a patient who is seizing in the field. They're seizing when they get to you. You've given two doses of benzodiazepine without breaking that seizure. I don't think wasting time with another AED makes sense. Instead, I'm going right to general anesthesia at that point. So if my benzodiazepines fail, I'm going to RSI with propofol. We know that propofol is a great anti-seizure medication, but in the doses that we're giving, we're clearly going to be causing respiratory depression, and so we're going to take over that airway. Now, whether to intubate with sucks or rocuronium here, I think you can make good arguments on either side. I typically will pick succinylcholine for these patients to avoid that prolonged paralysis and make sure that I have an ample dose of propofol given to keep that patient from continuing to seize. Using rocuronium makes it more likely that we have subclinical seizures going on without us knowing about it. Now, we're going to have to titrate that propofol to stop the seizures, and sometimes you end up giving so much propofol that their blood pressure starts to actually drop. And in these cases, you don't want to pull back on the propofol because that's going to make them seize again. Instead, what you want to do is add a vasopressor. So I typically would be adding Levofed for these patients to maintain their blood pressure. The vast majority of these patients will be stopped with propofol, and so then we move to step four, which is to get an EEG in place. We need to make sure that the patient isn't having subclinical status epilepticus, that they're not having continued seizure activity. Sometimes this can be hard to arrange, but you're going to have to work out a system in your hospital to get that applied to the patient early. In the rare patient that doesn't stop with propofol, ketamine would be my next agent. Some people are reaching for ketamine early, and I don't think that's a bad idea either. You might be able to stave off that intubation by giving ketamine up front, so before your propofol, but I don't have a lot of experience with that. So it's not my go-to after my benzodiazepines. I'm going benzos, then propofol, and then ketamine as a last resort. Post-intubation, you're going to want to start a traditional anti-epileptic drug on top of everything else that you're doing. So you can either use Keppra or I typically will go with phenytoin, 20 milligrams per kilogram. Let's wrap this all up with a summary. Step one is to establish that they actually do have status epilepticus. Step two, assess the ABCs, glucose, IV access, and set a blood gas for sodium. Consider pregnancy or recent postpartum state. Step three, give adequate benzodiazepine doses, midazolam 0.15 mg per kg IV or IM if you don't have IV access, and call for both of your benzodiazepine doses up front so you're ready to go with that second dose if the first one doesn't work. Step four, if the patient is still seizing, skip the traditional AEDs because they take too long to work and go right to RSI with propofol. Titrate your propofol up to stop the seizures and add Levofed if you need to support the blood pressure. Finally, consider some other causes of status epilepticus that you have specific antidotes for. If the patient's pregnant or recently postpartum, reach for magnesium. If INH is on their med list, reach for pyridoxine. If their sodium is low, reach for 3% hypertonic saline. If you're concerned about a sodium channel blocker toxicity like a TSA or something like diphenhydramine, reach for bicarbonate. Just a few points I want to highlight there. Remember the glucose. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Remember that the D, E, F, G stands for don't ever forget the glucose, as Sarah Reed once said. I love the pearl of getting the stat lights on a VBG to rule out hyponatremia. 
And as we mentioned in episode 73, probably the most important determinant of whether or not you're going to stop the seizure is time to first benzo. So don't waste time getting that first dose in. And if a patient doesn't have IV access, give IM medaz. It'll work faster than fiddling around trying to get an IV in a seizing patient with no veins. And as Swami said, don't wimp out on the dose. 10 milligrams of medaz or 7 or 8 milligrams of lorazepam in the average size adult. Next up, we've got our continuing series with Dr. David Yerlink on the most important drug interactions to know. Here's an interaction for docs who are fond of prescribing codeine or tramadol for analgesia. And tramadol especially has uh, got a, a fair bit of popularity these days. The key thing to be aware of with those drugs is they aren't opioids until your liver takes them and turns them into opioids. There's an enzyme called CYP2D6 that turns codeine into morphine and turns tramadol into an opioid called M1. And that's how they do the job. Now, you know, 90, 93% of us have the genetic machinery drug, but 7% of Caucasians don't. But in the 93% of us, who do have the ability to turn codeine to morphine or tramadol to M1, we might be on some other drug that totally blocks that enzyme. So if you've got a patient who you you prescribe tramadol to and she's on paroxetine or fluoxetine or bupropion or maybe amiodarone, these are all drugs that inhibit an enzyme called CYP2D6. And that's the enzyme that turns tramadol into its opioid metabolite, turns codeine into morphine. And I can just be pretty comfortable saying that if if you give somebody codeine or tramadol and they're on one of those drugs, you're pretty much guaranteeing them no opioid. Um, so much better, in, I think, in those instances to just use morphine or something that is, doesn't have that same requirement for bioactivation by a liver enzyme that A, might not be present in the first place, and B, if it's present, might be turned off by drugs that are actually pretty common. There's another way this interaction might come to your attention. You know, you might not precipitate it, but you might be on the receiving end of it. So imagine a scenario where a patient's on 300 or maybe 450 milligrams of codeine a day and is doing fine and goes to a, let's say a psychiatrist or a family doctor and is put on bupropion for smoking cessation or put on paroxetine for you know, depression or OCD or whatever. And then a week later is in your ED sick with, you know, abdominal pain, diarrhea, insomnia, you know, um, irritability, generalized pain. That is a totally plausible scenario of opiate withdrawal caused by the new drug, you know, whichever one it was, interfering with the conversion of codeine to morphine. You know, effectively, you know, just depriving the patient of the morphine they had been getting and, you know, um, until the new drug was added. Same phenomenon could happen with tramadol. You know, someone's on 150 tramadol a day and, you know, the addition of some other 2D6 inhibiting drug like paroxetine or bupropion could just abolish the conversion, uh, uh, or the metabolism of tramadol to M1, precipitating opiate withdrawal. So interactions with tramadol and codeine are worth knowing about because it could cause your prescription for tramadol or codeine to not have any effect in a patient who was on a drug that interfered with their bioactivation to actual you know, opioids. Or you might be looking after a patient on one of these drugs in opioid withdrawal, 
not because they stopped taking their codeine or tramadol, but because they took something else that interfered with the conversion of those drugs to their active metabolites. All right, so you'll certainly at some point, if you haven't already, run into a patient who's taking an antidepressant who wants codeine or tramadol. Now, as we discussed in our recent main episode on drugs that work and drugs that don't, tramadol is not a good analgesic choice for anyone, really. Tramadol is no more effective than acetaminophen or NSAIDs, has highly unpredictable analgesic effect, and has been shown to carry a higher addiction potential compared to other short-acting opioids. So probably best to avoid tramadol altogether, but especially in patients taking SSRIs, bupropion, or amio. Now on the flip side, you're also probably likely to run into a patient who's taking codeine or tramadol chronically who needs to be started on an antidepressant. Don't do it unless you want to deal with a flurid opioid withdrawal, of course. Next up on our EM Doc series, we have Britt Long give us a lowdown on whether or not we can use DOAC safely in patients with active malignancy. There's just no way around it. Cancer patients can be challenging for us in the ED. Neutropenic fever, tumor lysis syndrome, mucositis, there are all kinds of complications from cancer and the therapies. One of these problems is venous thromboembolic disease. Now, testing and diagnosis are really no different compared to other populations, but treatment is kind of like walking on a tightrope. While anticoagulation can reduce the risk of clot progression, we have to weigh this with the risk of bleeding, with major bleeding occurring in up to 18% of patients with cancer. This risk of bleeding most commonly involves the GI tract, with GI cancers at greatest risk of bleeding. Let's take the following case. You're caring for a 42-year-old female with ovarian cancer who presented to your ED with pleuritic chest pain. Unfortunately, a CTPE study finds a left segmental PE. She has no prior history of DVT or PE and is stable, and she asks you about therapy. Well, what do you use? Low molecular weight heparin? A direct oral anticoagulant? And what about the risk of bleeding? In patients without cancer, many physicians are now using direct oral anticoagulants, DOACs, dabigatran, apixaban, edoxaban, and rivaroxaban. The first studies evaluating these medications found them to be comparable, if not better than, standard anticoagulation. The fixed doses, no requirement for regular lab monitoring, and therapeutic efficacy in 1-4 hours are just some of the awesome benefits of these medications. However, the first studies evaluating these medications for the most part excluded patients with cancer. So this brings us back to our question, what should you use for the patient with cancer and newly diagnosed VTE? Several studies in the last couple years have addressed the potential use of DOACs in cancer patients. You might be familiar with the 2018 study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This study included patients with active cancer or cancer diagnosed in the last two years. It compared edoxaban with low molecular weight heparin. Oral edoxaban was non-inferior to standard therapy with dolteparin for the primary outcome of recurrent VTE. However, the risk of clinically relevant bleeding was increased in patients receiving edoxaban, with almost 16% of patients experiencing a bleed compared to 11% in those receiving dolteparin. Bleeding most commonly involved the upper GI tract. Bleeding more commonly involved those with GI cancers. 
Unfortunately, this study is far from definitive. Authors had multiple conflicts of interest due to sponsorship. They changed the primary endpoint and time frame. The study wasn't blinded. And patients were enrolled from outpatient clinics, not the ED. There have been several other important studies evaluating DOACs in cancer patients. In fact, there have even been several meta-analyses, including a Cochrane review. As you'll see, all of these seem to have a common theme. The 2018 Cochrane review found DOAC therapy reduced the rate of recurrent VTE compared to warfarin, but there was no change in mortality or rates of major bleeding. When it came to comparing with low molecular weight heparin, DOACs were more likely to reduce the rate of VTE recurrence, but they were associated with increased risk of major bleeding. Other meta-analyses suggest similar findings with reduced VTE recurrence with DOACs. However, when it comes to rates of major bleeding, the results are controversial. Some suggest increased rates of bleeding with DOACs, while others suggest no increased rate. The most recent meta-analysis from 2019 evaluated two RCTs and nine observational cohort studies. It is probably the highest quality of those published, as it was registered and conducted a thorough literature search with subgroup and sensitivity analysis. It found DOACs, specifically rivaroxaban, significantly reduced the risk of recurrent VTE, with an absolute risk reduction of 2.4% compared to low molecular weight heparin. This gives us a number needed to treat of 41 for DOACs. When it comes to bleeding, DOACs were associated with higher risk of bleeding with a pooled relative risk of 1.78 for the RCTs, but this was not seen in observational studies. Also on subgroup analysis, rivaroxaban was not associated with increased rates of bleeding. It seems DOACs are just as effective or slightly better than low molecular weight heparin when it comes to reducing the risk of recurrent VTE. However, this comes with a controversial increase in the risk of bleeding, especially in those with GI cancers. So what do the guidelines say? For patients with cancer and VTE, the American College of Chest Physicians recommends low molecular weight heparin over other anticoagulants. The American Society of Clinical Oncology also recommends using low molecular weight heparin, but DOACs are not recommended. On the other hand, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guideline has updated recommendations stating that edoxaban and rivaroxaban are the preferred treatments for cancer-associated VTE, and this is similar to the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis. On a quick side note, what about atrial fibrillation? Studies suggest similar findings with risk of VTE with DOACs when it comes to cancer patients with atrial fibrillation. Some suggest increased rates of bleeding, which approach 6%, while others suggest no increased risk when compared to standard therapies such as low molecular weight heparin. Back to our patient with newly diagnosed VTE, you have a couple options. You can discharge her with low molecular weight heparin and follow up, or start her on a DOAC like rivaroxaban. The risk of recurrent VTE is likely equal or even lower with DOACs when compared to low molecular weight heparin. However, in those with GI cancer, the risk of bleeding is higher. In these patients, it is probably safer to stick with low molecular weight heparin. Shared decision making with the patient is essential, and as always with these complicated patients, discuss the case with the oncologist. So bottom line when it comes to using DOACs in patients with active malignancy is yes, they're a safe option compared to other anticoagulants for most patients with cancer, 
but avoid them in patients with GI cancer. Next up, we've got arguably the most influential researcher in EM in the world, the mighty return to EM cases of Ian Steele. Now, Dr. Steele has some strong opinions on the management of AFib in the ED, uh, and if you haven't listened to Claire Atima's quick hit on anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation in EM quick hits number six, I recommend checking that one out first. And after Ian and I recorded this quick hit, we decided on a collaboration between EM cases and CGEM, the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now, this is really exciting. Hans Rosenberg, CGEM's social media editor, will be handpicking some of the guest experts who write CGEM's Just the Facts columns and spin those columns into an EM quick hit for you. So stay tuned for our CGEM series coming to EM quick hits next month. All right, let's get into it. Ian Steele on the age-old question, rate versus rhythm control for atrial fibrillation. We thought that rate versus rhythm control for acute atrial fib was an old question, but we know, despite the fact that many Canadian eMERGE docs uh, are very happy to cardiovert with drugs or shock and send the patient home, that uh, not all Canadians are like that. And when we go to other countries, the practice still seems to be not to cardiovert. It's more likely to be rate control or referral to cardiology possibly with an admission, which we think is totally unnecessary from the patient's point of view. I just presented uh, a clinical trial at both the SAEM and the uh, CAPE meetings in the last couple of weeks. Uh, This is the RAF2 trial, uh, a randomized controlled trial, double-blinded, where we compared uh, two strategies of cardioversion for acute atrial fib. The drug shock group received procainamide over 30 minutes followed by shock if necessary. The other group received uh, placebo infusion and then a shock. And we found at the end of the day, uh, both strategies were highly effective. The drug shock had a 97% success rate in cardioversion, and the shock-only group was 93% effective in, in leaving the patient back in sinus rhythm. When you look at all of these patients that we saw, 396 patients, 96% had converted to sinus rhythm while they're in the ED. Uh, 97% went home, and we followed them for uh, several weeks. Not a single patient had a stroke, and at their 14-day follow-up, 95% were still in sinus rhythm. So whereas it seems a drug shock or a shock-only approach are almost equally effective for dealing with uh, acute atrial fibrillation, the overall results for an aggressive rhythm control approach seem to be unquestionable. And really, uh, we would wonder in this day and age why this isn't offered to all patients with acute atrial fibrillation. We think it's much better for the patient. They are back in science rhythm. They can return to normal daily activities the same day. They don't necessarily have to be on anticoagulation or come back to see a cardiologist the next day or in a a month. So let me challenge you on that, Dr. Steele. (laughs) My understanding is that there's two new guidelines that suggest based on moderate, maybe weak evidence, that if we are cardioverting patients in the emergency department, that they should all be anticoagulated for a few weeks. 
And I imagine that there must be some risk associated with the anticoagulation and patients don't want to be anticoagulated and perhaps they play sports or do uh, high-risk activities. Should that play into your decision whether to rate control or rhythm control for those patients who don't meet the CHAD 65 rule? So let's say me as a mid-40s healthy guy who likes to mountain bike comes in an atrial fibrillation the last thing I want to do is be on a, on an anticoagulant for a few weeks. Yes, yeah, you're referring to the Canadian Cardiovascular Society update for the AF guidelines that they published in November of 2018, and an extremely controversial suggestion. It wasn't even a recommendation. It was a suggestion that, according to the grade guidelines, was considered a weak recommendation based on low-quality evidence that, in fact, all patients, once cardioverted, should be on uh, anticoagulation for a month. And, of course, we don't think this is appropriate. There is no strong evidence that tests adding this. And for many patients, uh, the historical rate of stroke for younger patients, those are not CHAD-65 positive, the historical rate of stroke is exceptionally low. And this has been confirmed in... uh, a series published of thousands of patients. So we're actually challenging that and and we'll have a commentary published shortly in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology suggesting that this is not the standard of care and that actually for gray murky areas like this that you might want to engage in shared decision making with the patient. You know, if you talk to them and you say, so if you're a young active person that likes to mountain bike, the risk of having a head injury and a bleed is probably higher, a lot higher than having a stroke. Whereas if you're a 60-year-old, very sedentary patient and you don't really care, but you really don't want a stroke, the patient might opt for the anticoagulation. Now, there's a recent New England Journal trial called Early or Delayed Cardioversion in Recent Onset Atrial Fibrillation, which is covered very nicely on Rebel EM. And that trial favored rate control over rhythm control. And rate control actually seems to be favored in many USED still. So bring on the comments in the comments section at the bottom of the blog post on this EM Quick Hits if you want to challenge Dr. Steele on his push for rhythm control in atrial fibrillation. Next up, Justin Morgenstern's going to give us a balanced look at the safety of peripheral vasopressors. You're working in a small rural hospital staffed by one doc and two nurses. There are multiple sick patients, all of whom require your attention, but the sickest currently is a 67-year-old female with pneumonia and a blood pressure of 70 on 40 despite multiple fluid boluses. So she has septic shock. You ask the nurse to start a norepinephrine drip, that's noradrenaline for some parts of the world, But he tells you he can't. You need to start a central line because there's a hospital protocol. He is not allowed to give vasopressors through a peripheral IV. I mean, no problem. We love procedures. But there are multiple other sick patients and many more in the waiting room. You wonder, wouldn't it be better to at least get this patient started on a vasopressor using that peripheral IV? I'll tell you, I've heard this both ways. During my training, I heard that you absolutely must not give pressors through a peripheral IV. It was substandard care. It was malpractice. On the other hand, I've heard this referred to as a complete myth. It's completely safe. Don't worry about it. 
I'll tell you, in medicine, things are rarely black and white. If you were placing a bet, the safe guess is always somewhere in the middle. So what does the evidence tell us here? Well, I think it's really important to know that there is potential harm from peripheral vasopressors. There's a systematic review by Lubani in 2015. They found 85 articles. Essentially, they're all case reviews and case series, so not the strongest level of evidence. And in total, there were 270 patients with 325 cases of local tissue injury or extravasation events. More specifically, there were 114 extravasation events from peripheral IVs, of which 75% had no injury at all, and most of the injuries were minor. However, there were three patients who suffered major disability and one in whom they thought extravasation was probably a contributor to death. Now, most of these events occurred when the IV was placed distal to the antecubital fossa, and the average length of infusion before extravasation occurred was 35 hours. Now, in the same study, there were 204 episodes of local tissue injury without obvious extravasation. But again, only nine of these resulted in a long-term major disability, but there were another four where the injury was thought to be a major contributor to death. Once again, most of these occurred when the IV was placed distal to the antecubital fossa and the average length of infusion before an injury occurred was 56 hours. So injury probably does happen. Now, of course, these are case reports, so we can't be sure of the cause. These were sick patients, so there may have been other contributors, emboli or clots or just bad peripheral perfusion. So maybe these injuries had nothing to do with the vasopressors. And more importantly, we don't know the denominator. How many patients received peripheral vasopressors and were perfectly fine? We just can't tell from this data. To get a better idea of the true incidence of harm, we need some prospective data. And there are a few studies. Cardenas Garcia et al. in 2015 performed a prospective observational study of adult patients receiving vasoactive medications through a peripheral IV over a 20-month period in a single ICU. Now, in this center, they used peripheral vasopressor for days, but they had a strict protocol for selecting appropriate IVs that might not be reproducible in most emergency departments, and they had a plan for extravasation. They included 734 patients, and there were only 19 extravasation events, so that's 2%. And none of those patients had any local tissue injury. But again, every one of the patients that had an extravasation got both phentolamine and nitroglycerin paste. There's another study by Ricard et al., and they randomized 263 patients at three French ICUs to receive either a central line or a peripheral IV as their initial venous access in the ICU. And the primary outcome was the rate of catheter-related complications. And at first glance, it looks like peripheral IVs were much worse. However, when you look closely at the data, most of the complications with peripheral IVs were because they had difficulty placing the IV. Those aren't the complications that I care about. For the complications that we're interested in, there, there were 22 extravasation events, or 17%, in the peripheral IV group, as compared to only 2, or 1%, in the central line group. However, there were no significant tissue injuries in those patients that had extravasations. So clearly, extravasations will occur, but the patient-oriented outcome of tissue injury is pretty rare. Finally, I'll mention the SENSOR trial from earlier this year. This was an RCT of early norepinephrine in septic shock, and most importantly for our purposes, they didn't require you to have a central line. And in about 60% of patients, the low-dose norepinephrine was given through a peripheral IV. There were 300 patients in this RCT, and there was one case of skin necrosis in both groups. So it's the same whether or not you got vasopressors. So what does this data tell us? 
Well, clearly, extravasation happens, and it isn't all that rare. However, true injuries, skin necrosis after extravasation, although it does occur, is pretty rare. I don't have an exact number, but it's definitely less than 1%. And of course, it's important to remember that central lines also come with risks. Infections, DVTs, arterial punctures, pneumothoraces. Not to mention the cost of the time it takes to place the line. And just to make matters a little bit more complicated, we probably should mention that we don't really have any real evidence that vasopressors result in patient-oriented benefit. So like all things in medicine, the evidence here is a little complicated. But I think the answer is pretty simple. Clearly, it's fine to run vasopressors through a peripheral IV. There's a risk, but the risk is low. You should have a good quality IV, and you should keep a very close eye on it. But overall, the risk is low. In fact, the risk is low enough that if the vasopressors are only required briefly, it might be safer to run them through a peripheral IV than to subject the patients to the risk of starting a central line. However, there is a risk. There are real harms, so we should not be cavalier about this. I have no problem starting my patients on vasopressors through a peripheral IV. And because most of my patients get transferred up to the ICU really quickly, I'll often leave them running peripherally and just let the ICU place the central line in a less chaotic environment. However, if it's clear that the vasopressors are going to be needed for the long term, the patient probably needs a central line. And if I'm the best person available to place it, you better believe I'm grabbing the ultrasound and getting it done as soon as I can. So peripheral IVs are relatively safe and quick, but they do carry a small risk. Extravasation is pretty common, not a huge deal, but tissue necrosis, the one we really care about, is rare, less than 1% for sure. Now we've said it before on EM cases, if you're running vasopressors through a peripheral line, get Q1H limb checks for early signs of necrosis. Last but not least, we've got a really important quick hit. This one with Michelle Clayman and special guest Taryn Lloyd, my co-editor for the EM cases eBooks, is about how best to motivate your patient to take care of themselves and comply with your treatment plan. It amazes me how many bounce backs I see where the treatment plan was excellent, but because there was no buy-in from the patient, they ended up getting sicker. So motivational interviewing is something they don't really teach very well in most residency programs. It's probably up there in my top three biggest oversights in EM education. Have you ever wondered how to help your patients make a meaningful change in their lives with regards to their drug and alcohol use? We all know that telling someone not to do something, not to drink, not to smoke, not to inject fentanyl after yet another overdose is going to be met with resistance. Eventually, we feel demoralized, defeated, lose our compassion, because really, what's the point if they're not going to listen to us anyways? To help us understand how we can do this better, Dr. Taryn Lloyd has joined us for part one of a two-part series on motivational interviewing. This episode, we'll go through the foundations. The next episode will include a demonstration of a motivational interview. Dr. Lloyd is a final year emergency medicine resident in Toronto who just completed a fellowship in addiction medicine. Dr. Lloyd, what are we doing wrong when we tell someone not to do something? Let me start with an example. My husband leaves his clothes on our couch and it drives me crazy. The pile grows and grows and I nag and nag for him to clean up. This never goes well. Tensions grow, I get more angry, he gets more annoyed, and the pile of clothes goes nowhere. Why can't you just put the clothes away? Alternatively, if I say nothing, the clothing pile eventually disappears. 
People are most able to change when they feel free not to. When we confront someone with the perceived and real authority of a physician and feel the need to educate them, the natural response for most people is to meet this with resistance. For patients that don't know us and don't feel like we understand them and their lives, telling them not to do something doesn't change how they feel about it. Let's be honest, they already know their drug and alcohol use is unhealthy and that they should quit. So when we challenge ambivalent patients in this way, the natural response is for them to defend the status quo. Dr. Lloyd, what can we do instead? Let's step back and reframe the conversation. Motivational interviewing, or MI, is an evidence-based, patient-centered communication strategy that you can use on your next shift. It can be two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes. The point is, is that it's a shift in the conversation. First, some basics about MI. The spirit of MI is to use collaboration, autonomy, and evocation to enhance the patient's own inherent motivations and commitment to make changes. The principles are to resist the writing reflex, understand their motivations, listen, and empower. Okay, so we want to express empathy while determining their willingness, confidence, and readiness to change. This helps patients work through their ambivalence and build empowerment. Nice concepts, but what does this actually look like? There are many different techniques to recognize, reinforce, and elicit change talk. This includes the basic skills of MI conveyed by the acronym ORS, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflective listening, and summaries. We will go through what this actually looks like more in the next episode. One easy technique to use in the emergency department is the readiness ruler. Three simple questions. On a scale of 1 to 10, how important is it for you to make this change? How confident are you in being able to make this change? And how ready are you to make this change today? Okay, so you see a patient in the eMERGE for the fourth time this week who presents with a severe COPD exacerbation. He continues to smoke two packs of cigarettes per day. Instead of saying, hey buddy, you need to quit smoking, you decide to use the principles of MI and you ask him the three questions in the readiness ruler. Let's focus on the first question. On a scale of one to 10, how important is quitting smoking? Let's say he chooses a six. Now what? There are two follow-up questions that are important here. First, what led you to choose six versus a three? They will then talk about reasons about why it is important for them to make a change. I noticed you picked a lower number than what they said, a three instead of a six. Had you asked it the other way around, how come you chose a six instead of an eight? They would have then defended their behavior. Yeah, exactly. The point is to get them talking about the reasons why they want to make a change, rather than the reasons why things should stay the same. There's a second follow-up question that is also important. What would it take for you to move from a six to a seven or up to an eight? This focus allows for the identification of small, manageable steps, and we should be prepared to listen well, reflect, and explore these answers. So in summary, motivational interviewing is a brief intervention, a five-minute conversation that is an efficient use of your time, easy to do, and is effective in helping our patients work through ambivalence, build empowerment, and make a behavioral change. You can start exploring MI by using the readiness ruler and asking those three questions. How important is it for you to change? How confident are you to make the change? And how ready are you to make the change? I challenge you to try it out on your next shift to see how it goes. Next episode, Taryn will interview me about a change I'm trying to make in my own life. Stay tuned. 
Let's bring it all home with some final take home points. Number one, remember to give the right dose of midaz as soon as possible in your status epilepticus patients. Think about causes that might require other treatments. And after two doses of midaz, go straight to RSI with propofol. Number two, better not to use codeine or tramadol at all, but if you do use it, beware of the drug interactions with SSRIs, bupropion, and amio. Number three, patients with active malignancy can take DOAC safely, but make sure you avoid them in patients with GI cancers. Number four, there's an argument to be made for rhythm control over rate control for ED patients in acute atrial fibrillation, and Ian Steele makes a pretty good argument. Number five, peripheral vasopressors are generally safe, but you still need to be aware of the rare complication of tissue necrosis. And number six, if you want your patient to stop using opioids or stop smoking or comply with whatever treatment plan you give them, learn motivational interviewing and start with the three questions of the readiness ruler. You might be surprised at the huge difference it makes in your patient's trajectory. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's EM Cases. Thanks so much, Dr. Clayman, Lloyd, Swaminathan, Morgenstern, Yearling, Steele, and Long for your contributions. Don't forget the free Quiz Vault is almost 1,000 questions strong with about 1,700 of your colleagues using it. So give it a try. It's the ultimate learning tool. And save the date for the EM Cases course 2020. It's February 8th and 9th, which includes a second day dedicated to high-fidelity simulation. Uh, Tickets go on sale in mid-September, and there are two or three spots left for Podcast Camp September 21st and 22nd in Toronto if you want to become a kick-ass podcaster yourself. Oh, and coming soon on the EM Cases website, very exciting, a brand new offering, wait for it, the ECG Cases blog. Jesse McLaren, a fantastic educator and ECG guru, will bring you each month a killer ECG case, discuss a bit of the literature around some key finding on the ECG, and give you practice-changing take-home pearls. And just maybe we'll have Jesse do some quick hits podcast segments that compare with the blog like a fine wine and cheese do. So until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.